Well, as you remain standing, you can turn in your Bibles to the fifth book in God's Word, the book of Deuteronomy, to the very last chapter, Deuteronomy 34, as we want to uh, cover these 12 verses tonight. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find tonight's text on page 177 in the Chairback Bibles. And nearby you, we continue our ongoing series of selective studies in the Old Testament under this title of that old gospel story. After a few weeks in Numbers, we want to think about just one story as we close our attention given to Moses' life tonight. It seems quite appropriate, doesn't it, to get to Moses' dying day. So let me read these 12 verses for us and pray for our time and... Then we'll begin together. So uh, listen once again as God speaks to you through his powerful word. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pishgah, which is opposite Jericho. The Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Bet Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. The people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days, and then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him, So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty deeds and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel." As far as the reading of God's word, let's I pray once again together. Our great God and merciful Father, we do thank you that you bring us once again into your dwelling place, which is the church of Jesus Christ. And with the psalmist, we long to inquire upon your beauty in this place as you raise our gaze to Jesus Christ. And we pray that we'd be faithful to the command that you spoke so long ago on that mount of transfiguration, that we would listen to your Son as he even speaks now to us, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the more significant and strange realities that belong to being a pastor is that you attend each and every year lots of funerals. But the strange part of that reality is almost all of those funerals find you officiating the funeral, not being a simple observer of the funeral. And so several years ago, when a 
member of a former church that I had pastored called me to say that her dad had died. It was one of those few occasions where I was going to go to a funeral and not be behind a pulpit, but actually sit in a pew, and I thought it was going to be a good thing at the time to take a few of our younger kids with me, because it's always good to uh, make sure kids understand the reality of death and the hope of Jesus Christ, and the face of death as this godly man had died, no doubt, in the faith, looking upon the Lord. And so I took, I think it was our three older kids at the time with me to the funeral, hoping that there would be some type of conversation we might have about death and these matters of eternal significance. And and by God's grace, we did. And I know it stuck, this funeral did, at least with one of the children, because every time we drive past the building where that funeral happened, which is actually on a normal pathway to one of the kids' soccer practices, this a child will say almost every single time, hey, Dad, isn't that the place where we did that funeral? Because sometimes, and many of you know this from experience, don't you, a funeral just can stick with you in a way unlike other events seem to stick with you. And I tell you that because as we come to chapter 34 in Deuteronomy, we come to Moses' dying day, we come to Moses' funeral, and this is a funeral that in God's economy and his written word to us, he means for it to stick to us in a very particular way that I trust we'll see by the end of our study tonight. And so as I said, in the last few weeks, if you haven't been with us, we have uh, tried to pick up the story of Moses after the Exodus and God's glory dwelling in the tabernacle at the end of the book of Exodus. We've turned our attention in recent weeks to these significant events and Moses' life and the book of Numbers, thinking about how each one of those significant events are, are clearly pointing us in type and shadow to the substance that comes in Jesus Christ. So if you were with us last week, Uh, Seth Miller turned our attention to Numbers chapter 21, which is there, children, you might remember that in judgment upon Israel, God had sent these fiery serpents to break out in punishment and penalty against Israel, and many died, and he instructed Moses to take the bronze serpent, uh, to place it up there on a stick, on a pole, far above for all the people to see, and uh, we heard how in John chapter 3, Jesus talked about that very story saying, just as the bronze serpent was raised in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that all would look upon him and find life in his name as Jesus was, of course, raised on that cursed cross of the Mount of Calvary. Uh, What I want to do tonight is turn our attention to the end of Moses' life, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And I wonder, when was the last time you might have read through the entire book of Deuteronomy? 34 chapters long, many verses long is this book. And it's, of course, the fifth book in what we call the Pentateuch, these first five books in the Bible. The the title, even Deuteronomy, means something like second law. If you flip back to the beginning of the book in chapter 1, what you would see is that this book is little more than an extended sermon, more likely a, a collection of a couple of sermons, At the very end of Moses' life, as the nation of Israel was only about a month away from entering into the promised land. So it represents here Moses' last will and testament. It's this exhortation, this final motivation that he gives to the nation of Israel to be faithful to God's covenant, lest the covenant curses fall upon them. 
So we are coming to the end, and all I want you to see by way of context tonight before we walk through our brief passage is I want you to understand in a way that perhaps you've not seen before how the book of Deuteronomy has a pronounced disquieting tone, actually to the whole thing, but certainly at the very end. Because you can think, here's this great man of God, Moses. There's no one like him that's ever lived in all of Israel. He gets to his dying day. He's going to deliver this final exhortation to Israel, and it's going to be this stirring motivation. It's going to be this encouraging exhortation to be faithful. But actually, the tone is quite different. Because if you flip back to chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, uh, what you'll see is after there's this further declaration of Joshua succeeding Moses. Look at verse 19 of Deuteronomy 31, where Yahweh tells Moses, now therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. This song is the one getting ready to come, famously Moses' song of Deuteronomy chapter 32. Now why is Moses to put this song in the people's ears? Well, Yahweh continues, put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. And if you just scan your eyes through verse 20, what he says is, for when I brought them into the promised land, or when I have brought them into the promised land, look at the end, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And only a couple of chapters before, God has spoken with, frankly, terrifying eloquence the terrors that will fall upon God's people when they break the covenant. And God has just said, guess what? They're going to put this song in their mouths. They're going to sing it throughout the generations. Why? It's going to be my witness against them when they break the covenant. Well, skip down in the same chapter to verse 29. Chapter 31, verse 29. Moses now looks to his dying day and essentially reiterates the exact same thing, hence the disquieting tone, the ominous undercurrent in this book. He says, verse 29, I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly. So there's no hope and optimism whatsoever in Moses' mind as he's getting ready to die. You are surely going to turn corrupt, turn aside from the way that I've commanded you, and in the days to come, evil will befall you because What you will do is evil in the Lord's sight, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Chapter 32, he puts the song in their ears. He puts the song upon their mouths. Chapter 33, you get these final benedictions upon the tribes. And then we get to chapter 34, where Moses comes to his dying day. And while there is this disquieting, rather ominous tone to the passage, what we're going to see by the end is it, it does actually have a pretty pronounced line of hope for ears that have listened carefully to Moses' sermon by this point. So I want you to see, first of all, in verses 1 through 8, a prophet dies, and secondly, I want you to see another prophet arrives. So look again, verse 1, a prophet dies. We're told in chapter 34, verse 1, Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, the top of Pishka. We don't know exactly how tall this mount was, but it's probably something like 3,500 feet. And kids, if you've ever uh, climbed up any mountain of just even a few thousand feet, uh, what you know is, of course, the higher up you go, not only does the air around you seem to get quieter, the higher up you go, the easier it is to see further than you've ever seen before, certainly compared to life at level land. And as Moses is now on the top there of Mount Nebo at the summit of Pishkah, it's as though the Lord shows him, you'll see in the next few verses, he shows them, shows Moses, uh, the promised land that Moses is not going to enter, but Moses is going to get to see. 
And from, from your idea, what he basically does, Yahweh does, is says, Moses, look to the north. Okay, now Moses, look to the west. And then the scan of the promised land ends in many ways with him looking to the south. He's saying, this is what I have told my people. They will receive according to my covenant kindness. And so in verse 4, you get Moses hearing from the Lord the last words recorded in all of Scripture that Moses heard from Yahweh and their words about Yahweh's faithfulness. Now I want you to see two things that Yahweh is faithful to in verse 34. Number one, he's faithful to bless. The Lord is faithful to bless. Look at verse 4. And Yahweh said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. And it's almost a bookend of sorts to uh, the book of Deuteronomy because Moses began his sermon in chapter 1 by reminding them of that very same promise spoken to the patriarch Abraham all the way back in Genesis. That this covenant grace, this covenant blessing that was going to come to God's people included, uh, you're going to be a people in a promised land. And now what Yahweh is saying to Moses is, Moses, look at it. Uh, we've made it. You've made it. My promise has finally made it. This, this scan, if you will, of the promised land is Moses' experience of God's yes and amen to his covenant grace that was spoken so many centuries before to the patriarch named Abraham. Uh, what you need to recognize even here is God has been faithful to his promise to bless even though countless generations died without ever seeing that promise come to fruition. Now, do you know it's possible uh, that God is going to be faithful to his promise in your life, yet you never experience it in your lifetime? That countless generations knew that God was faithful to his promise about the land, even though in God's providential decree, they were never actually going to get to set foot in the land, not even see the land like Moses, and God was still faithful to his promise throughout all the years that God might have a particular promise to your family that he doesn't mean to fulfill in your lifetime, nor does he mean to fulfill in your children's lifetime. Perhaps it's even fulfilling itself in your great-great-grandchildren's lifetime. But it's your obedience and faithfulness to the Lord now that he requires of you. So God's promises, don't they seem to not only come to fruition at all times, but oftentimes much more slowly than we expect. So he's faithful to his promise to bless, but you need to see also in verse four, he's faithful to his promise to punish. He's faithful to his promise to punish. Look what he says to Moses at the end. I've let you see it with your eyes, Moses, but you shall not go over there. Our kids, do you remember from a couple of weeks ago why it is that, that Moses doesn't get to see and experience with his hands and feet uh, the promised land. Well, you can glance back if you want to the end of chapter 32 after this a song from Moses. Uh, the eighth and final time, actually, that his death uh, before coming into the promised land is mentioned in Deuteronomy. The Lord simply says in verse 51 of Deuteronomy 32, Moses, you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. What was the story? Well, the nation of Israel there was grumbling, weren't they? They were complaining, as God's people throughout the generations always seemed prone to do. And God had directed Moses, you're going to go to this rock, and Moses, what are you going to do? Speak to the rock, and water 
for the millions of people and cattle is going to pour forth. Now Moses, because he's so annoyed and frustrated with the nation of Israel's grumbling and complaining, he decides not just to speak to the rock, but he first begins by speaking to the people. And then he doesn't even speak to the rock, but he strikes the rock as he did back in the book of Exodus. This is as though he's taking the power upon himself, showing him as the one who is actually delivering God's people when all along he was supposed to set apart the Lord. He was supposed to show the Lord holy and saying to just speak to the rock and the Lord is going to miraculously bring water from it. Well, he didn't do it. And so Moses doesn't get to see the promised land. God is faithful. And sometimes, and maybe even for some of you in the room tonight, uh, what seems like good news, God is faithful, can actually be the most horrifying news you ever hear. Because God is faithful to punish those who fall short. God is faithful to destroy, as we're soon going to see, those who don't listen. His faithfulness is a wonderful thing for those who belong to Jesus Christ. His faithfulness is a terrifying thing for those who are outside of Jesus Christ. And the reason that we know that actually something unique is happening here in Moses' life is because the text seems to be at pains to tell us Moses doesn't die merely of old age. Look at verse 7. He was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. It's an ancient way of saying there was nothing wrong with Moses when he died. So why did he have to die? Because the people were getting ready to go into the promised land. And God said, Moses, you're not going to get to see it. Therefore, go up to the mountain because it's your dying day. And perhaps in a not terrifying way, but a tender way, you see in verse 5 and 6, the Lord himself performs the burial service. As verse 6 says, Yahweh buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Bet Peor. My great Genevan reformer, John Calvin, he died in, what was it, 1564. And it was common at that time for ministers, particularly ministers that were in a congregation for a long period of time, that when they died, they would be buried on the church grounds, more often than not, as close to the pulpit as possible. And so when Calvin died, uh, he was wrapped in this simple shroud, and he was laid in the ground, but he was laid in this unmarked grave that wasn't next to St. Pierre's Cathedral, where his successor Theodore Beza was laid as close to the pulpit as possible, because Calvin seemingly understood that he didn't want his grave to be some sort of Protestant Reformation-like relic. He just wanted to be forgotten, because who is John Calvin in the grand scheme of things? And perhaps in the same way, what's happening here with Moses is there's no place for potential idolatry in the nation of Israel's life related to the great, great redeemer and mediator of old. Because you'll see at the end of verse 6, no one knows the place of his burial to this day. He died and no one has ever known where exactly the Lord laid him into the ground. So a prophet dies. And I want you to see now in verse 9 and following that another prophet arrives uh, you, you paid attention, no doubt, to the news this week and, and saw the, the turning of an era in the Queen's death and the dying of a monarch meant for a people in Great Britain, this, this noticeable passing of, of one generation to another. 
Uh, what used to exist now seems to formally and finally be done, and something altogether different is now rising in power. And uh, much in the same way, verse 9, the same is happening with Moses' death, because we're told Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and so the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord uh, commanded him. And students, I'd underscore for you just uh, that phrase there in verse 9. Joshua, Moses' successor, who would lead the people into the promised land, he had in him a spirit of what? Wisdom. Now, if you're going to lead God's people into the promised land, and what's required to lead them into the promised land is to conquer all of the nations opposing you in the promised land. Uh, You might think that what Joshua needs is Perhaps even as the book of Joshua begins, a spirit of courage, a spirit of bravery. Maybe he needs a spirit of faithfulness. But what's necessary for Joshua here, students, is a spirit of wisdom. I hope you know that every day you wake up, what you need is is wisdom for what the Lord is going to bring you that day. That's why even the book of Proverbs continually shouts over and over, from a father to a son, child, above anything, Riches, rubies, gold, silver, what you need in this world is what? Wisdom. Wisdom that comes from fearing God. Wisdom that's found in Jesus Christ, as 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Jesus has become to us wisdom from God. What Joshua needed most is, is wisdom. But here's the challenge Deuteronomy 34 is presenting to us. It's got this bleak, as I said, ominous, disquieting tone. Because here's the problem. If Moses who followed the Lord in a way no one else had to that point or ever since, still failed in such a way he didn't get to enjoy the promised land, why do you think the nation of Israel will succeed in such a way as to stay in the promised land? And actually what the text says, why do you think Joshua is going to do any better than Moses? What they need is actually a perfect prophet and mediator. Notice verse 10 And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. We don't know how many years have passed between this closing of Deuteronomy and when this editor comes along the way to comment upon the nation of Israel's life of leadership ever since Moses and Joshua. But what it's simply telling us is Moses came. He was the greatest prophet Israel's ever seen. And he still didn't get to see the promised land. And Joshua came full of the spirit of wisdom God's chosen successor, and even Joshua, can't hold a candle to Moses. So do you see this rather bleak tone here at the end of Deuteronomy? What does Israel need but a perfect prophet? In 2007, one of the greatest violinists in the world, a man named Joshua Bell, he performed this concert one night in Washington, D.C., Uh, As far as I can tell, if you were in the proverbial nosebleed section of this concert, you still paid $200 a ticket. And for that concert that night, he had been playing this 300-year-old violin, worth at the time $3.5 million. Hey, he was a pretty important violinist. Two days later, at the behest of a Washington Post journalist wanting to do something of a social test, Joshua Bell ditched his tuxedo, put on a Washington Nationals hat, took the violin and went to a metro station in Washington, D.C., with cameras hidden all around. And he began to play the exact same music. Thousands of people walked by. 
And according to the hidden cameras, and all the time he was playing, only seven people even stopped to listen but momentarily to these wonderful sounds coming from millions of dollars worth of a violin in the hands of one of the protégés of the world. And what's the point for us tonight is human beings, ever since Adam's fallen to sin, we have a hard time listening. You know, kids, maybe your parents talked to you this week, did you hear me? Or maybe husbands, did your wife say to you this week, were you listening to me? We have a hard time listening. And what is a dominant theme throughout Deuteronomy from beginning to end, you find it over and over in Moses' instruction to Israel, is what's necessary for their faithfulness to God's covenant is their obedience in listening. Because it's the word of God that a previous chapter has said is your life. What they must do is listen. So you look again at verse 10. What does it say? There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. Now I ask the question here, why is Moses' work as a prophet singled out? If listening wasn't so important. You know that Moses is a redeemer, a mediator, an intercessor. Moses is a priest. But what's most important at the end of Moses' day is what office? His prophetic office. What Israel needs is a greater prophet. And Moses told Israel to expect a greater prophet would soon enough come. Flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And perhaps one of the most important passages in a book full of important passages, what you'll see in Deuteronomy 18, is Moses insert this section in the midst of a declaration about God's laws and exposition about these rites and rituals. He says in verse 15 of chapter 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So what I want to do here at the, at the close quite quickly is tell you two things about a prophet who was to come and how you must respond to him. We know, of course, his name is Jesus. And so it's why, first of all, you need to see here at the end that Deuteronomy chapter 34 is calling you to look to Jesus Christ as God's prophet. You remember in John chapter 1 that John the Baptist, this kind of prophetic figure that kind of balances his feet between the old and the new covenant regimes, John the Baptist shows up and he's causing such a, a tizzy in the land that the religious leaders come and say, hey, uh, who are you, John? You know, they say, uh, are you Elijah? They say, are you a prophet? You know, tell us who you are. The story of John moves forward. John chapter 4, Jesus meets the woman at the well and she says, well, you know what? This man, Jesus, he's a prophet. After the miracle of feeding 5,000 in John chapter 6, what do the people cry out there in verse 14 of chapter 6? But the prophet has come to us. Acts chapter 3, when Peter's preaching his sermon in Solomon's portico, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, and says, God's prophet has finally come. And it comes actually with the warning that God will destroy any who do not listen to him. What God's people needed was a perfect prophet. Because some of you kids and students might know your shorter catechism well enough to know what's the answer to Christ executing the office of a prophet. Well, he executes the office of a prophet and is revealing to us by his word and spirit God's will for our salvation. That's what a prophet does. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ does. So, it's not only calling us, Deuteronomy 34, is to look to Jesus Christ as God's prophet, but preeminently listen to Jesus Christ 
as God's prophet. Because that's actually what the Father spoke to you and me from another text in the Gospels. So Moses was never allowed to enter the promised land. He was only allowed to see it, do the scan from north to west to south. And maybe you know that there was a time in the future, actually many centuries in the future, where Moses set his feet there in the promised land on another mountain. When Jesus was transfigured before the disciples, when Jesus spoke about another exodus coming, who accompanied him on the Mount of Transfiguration there in the promised land? But a man named Moses, along with Elijah. If you notice again, verse 11 of Deuteronomy 34 tells us what was Moses like, the end of verse 10 actually, into verse 11. The Lord knew him face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord had sent him to do, whereas Moses knew the Lord face to face. Jesus Christ, the, the true and better prophet, he was God's glory in his very face. And as Moses and Elijah and those three disciples were gathered there next to the radiant, resplendent Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, what did the Father say to the cloud that overshadowed the mountain? This is my son, my chosen son. Deuteronomy 18, 15 needs to be in the back of your mind. What does the final command with an exclamation point in your English Bible say? Listen to him. For he alone has words of life. What do you need? You need a prophet who speaks to you those very words of life. Moses wasn't it. But the true and greater prophet has come. And his name is Jesus Christ. That's a story of a prophet. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you that you speak to us in these last days through the word of your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that he speaks to us the words that we must hear, which are words of salvation, which are words of direction, which are words of redemption, knowing that by his blood and according to his word of grace, we might be welcomed into his promised land, sealed and assured forever and ever. We pray that you would do that even in our very hearts, that you would open our ears this day to respond rightly with faith and repentance to his word of truth. And we pray it in his precious name. Amen.